Hi, Chris. Good afternoon. Hello again. Good afternoon. Good to see you again. Uh, okay, I'm going to, uh, if you'll remember, I'm Jacqueline Bolges, and I'm one of the five members of the City of Madison's Police and Fire Commission. We are all residents of the Madison community. Under state law, the PFC has the authority to appoint the city's next chief of police. And the PFC has spent the past year carefully working on this process, including collecting and reviewing a substantial amount of input from numerous groups, individuals, and other stakeholders. The PFC is grateful for all of this input, of course, um, and it contributed to all stages of this process. The six questions we'll be asking that we have asked each candidate including you, the final candidate today, are derived from that input. With that context, I'd like to start with the first question. Ready to go? Yes, ma'am. Okay. First, please take a minute to introduce yourself to the residents of Madison and tell us why you want to be our chief of police. So, uh, as you know, my name is Chris Davis. I've I've been uh, in policing for will be 27 years next month. I started my career at the Arizona State University Police Department in Tempe. I spent almost five years there and then came here to the Portland Police Bureau in Portland, Oregon in 1998. And uh, I've held a variety of roles over the years in our organization, worked my way through all the different ranks for the last Four years now, I've been in the chief's office as the assistant chief of the services branch, which is all the things that we don't make exciting police movies about, right? The budget, the training division, the personnel division, but all those things that you can't run a, a major city police agency without. Uh, and then I spent about six months in, as the assistant chief of operations, which is all of our patrol services and traffic division. And then for the last year, I've been the deputy chief, and my job is to run the day-to-day -day operations of the police bureau, including through some really challenging times uh, here in 2020 with the pandemic and some really unprecedented civil unrest uh, and protest activity. I, we'll probably talk about that later, but those are two really different things. Um, why Madison? For me, there's there's three different categories of reasons. One is uh, some personal reasons. My wife is from Wisconsin. She's from up in the Green Bay area, and she has family up in the in the Green Bay Appleton area, and then over in Milwaukee. And my, most of my family is still in central Ohio, and so we're really far away from them. And, you know, 2020 has taught us that it's a good time to get back to our roots a little bit. From a professional standpoint, I, it, the police chief job in Madison is actually very highly respected in our profession, and I think with good reason, because the police department and the community in Madison are very highly respected. I think it's an opportunity to lead a, another progressive police agency like the one that I work in now through a really pivotal time in the history of our profession where, it, you know, to varying degrees in different communities, we have this crisis of confidence in policing today, and, and it's very important for us to get that right, and I think your next police chief has an opportunity to do a lot of really good things to further develop that trust and that relationship between the police department and the community that it serves. And then I would say that the, the last sort of category of reasons 
for why Madison has to do with just the opportunity more broadly than in the community of Madison. I mean, obviously the focus of the chief and the police department is to serve that community really, really well. But there's also an opportunity for us to put together a program and to develop a, that organization in a way that it becomes an example to the rest of our profession, at least nationally, if not worldwide. And I, I see Madison and especially the, the quality that you're already working with as an opportunity to take the organization to the next level and build something that everybody can, can benefit from and can learn from. Thank you very much. Um, do you believe local police have a role in enforcing federal immigration laws? Please explain. Uh, the short answer is no, and I'll explain why. Immigration laws are a federal issue, and really there's no local impact. And to me, there's just not justification for using local resources to enforce immigration laws. And part of the issue that I take with federal immigration enforcement at the local level is a lot of their enforcement is based on uh, not even necessarily warrants. And so there's some due process issues that I realize that federal immigration authorities have a set of rules that they operate by, but it's not all that compatible. Um, not every, most immigration detainers aren't from a judge, where in the local police world, if we're going to intrude that far into someone's liberties, typically we have a warrant issued by a judge. And so I think that their administrative process for, for issuing their detainers, I think, is, is inconsistent with our sort of standards for where we'll take action. But there's a much bigger and more fundamental issue involved, and that is that we as local police need to be able to count on the trust of the community that we serve. And that goes for everyone who happens to be in the city at that time. And, it, you know, there, I, I recognize the debate that has gone on in this country for a while about, about immigration generally, and I'm not going to wade into political issues like that right now. But for us in local policing, we need to be able to, number one, serve crime victims because sometimes immigrants are crime victims and they have a right, just like everyone else does, to justice and to closure and to some help with their issues. Sometimes we serve people in emergencies where we really would, you know, the whole community would benefit if someone would call the police and, and work with the police on an issue. And if people have fear of us in local policing, that there will be some kind of civil immigration consequences of their cooperation with us on public safety issues, that's really not where we want to be in local policing. And so I, I am a firm believer that there really isn't an appropriate role for local policing or local government, really, even in immigration enforcement. Okay. Um, <clears throat> on to question number three. It seems that police fear some of the communities they work in, some of the people in the communities they work in, and the communities fear the police in return. What fears have you observed in the communities you've policed in, and what strategies might you deploy to help heal the harms 
that cause these fears? So a, a particular fear that I have observed in the community where I work is in our African-American community in their interactions with police that in the fear that members of their of that community will be perceived as suspicious or threatening when they really aren't. And I have an example that I like to use of this. We have a local pastor who's a friend of mine who he's, he is a pastor of a historic church in North Portland, and he's a pillar of the community. He is the last person in the world that we would need to be worried about being involved in any kind of criminal activity. But he's told me that when he gets to the store, or he's out someplace and realizes he's lost, he's left his wallet and his driver's license at home. He won't just get in the car and drive home and get it because of that fear that he's might come into contact with a police officer who might find something suspicious about that or see something threatening about him. And he won't even drive without his driver's license on him. And he sets the cruise control when he goes out in the middle of the night to visit people in his own church in the hospital. To me, that that I, I keep that story in mind because it is it, it you know it is it's based on people's legitimately held beliefs and based on things that they've seen from our profession. And for me, as a as a career public safety professional, I see that as a really big problem for us. If that is the impact that my profession has on someone like the pastor of this church we have to work through that issue in our community. And I think the way we do that, it starts with the way we socialize our police officers. I think it's very important for us to help our new police officers and our, our currently serving police officers to realize that we all have bias as human beings and to just train them in how those biases can show up if you're not being mindful about it in your work. And, and it's, it, you know, it has to do with the way I think that people have trouble comprehending complexity a lot of times. And so we build these mental shortcuts. And in this country, the fact of our history is that we have had some really unproductive and harmful shortcuts programmed into our thinking about different groups of people. And one of the things we have to do in police work is try to deprogram those shortcuts to the extent that they exist. And so we, we need to train people to understand what their biases are. If they have them, there are implicit biases, obviously someone with an explicit bias against members of a particular racial group. We have a psychological testing process, hopefully that keeps those people from being hired in the first place, but training people that we all have bias, how that bias works, and then how to consciously, short circuit that process so that you don't display that bias in your work. And then I think we just really need to have some honest conversations about how we're perceived in the community. Because I know for me, and over the course of my career, some of the most impactful times when it comes to my thinking about, about relationships in different communities, and especially in communities of color with the police, have been the times where I've just been exposed to some reality about the impact that we've had on people and how that works. And, and so one of the things that we did here in Portland to try and get at that a few years ago is we had students of color come into all of our in-service classes for a year 
and just we did a listening session where they talked they shared stories about their experiences with the police from their perspective so that our officers were able in a non-threatening environment on their kind of their home environment and a comfortable place for them and our training division to have these really courageous people come in and tell these stories about how they've been impacted by us and how they perceived the interactions. I think when you're able to take a step back as a police officer and realize how you can be perceived, particularly in communities of color, it just changes your mindset when you go into those circumstances. And so, you know, when I make a traffic stop of a young African-American male, I might understand why he's nervous, and that's not necessarily something for me to be suspicious about. It might be that he's nervous because of just the national conversation about what can happen on traffic stops, and we can take that interaction in a whole different direction and have a positive interaction come out of that instead of a negative one. And so I think, it, it, you know, just to summarize, it goes back to the, the training of the officers that we currently have and the way we socialize officers, and I would, I would say we want to be really mindful about how how we train officers in articulating circumstances they find suspicious and making sure that we, we never use someone's race or ethnicity as a basis for suspicion. Thank you very much for that. Um, what is your personal perspective on police engagement with youth? How can we ensure an environment in which young people are able to learn and thrive? free from fear? Well, I think it all comes down to respect. And, you know, young people are like everybody else. They have a, a need to be respected by, by police and by everyone else. Um, I have a little bit of experience in police engagement with youth. I was a cadet coordinator at our, when we still had our Southeast precinct here as a patrol officer. And we worked in a neighborhood that, that was not uh, super privileged. And so we got to see how that cadet program, and in your agency, I think you call it the Explorer program, we saved some kids in that neighborhood from some, some really bad outcomes later on in life because we were able to provide them with a positive example and with, a, this, and with some pro-social engagement with police. And so I think it is very important for our police officers to be able to engage with youth in those pro-social moments when there isn't a problem and to be able to have youth see us as human as opposed to this authority figure. And I think back to the way I perceived the police when I was in high school I didn't see the humanity of police officers because I didn't know any of them, and none of them ever made an, made a, an effort to get to know me. And, and I think that's a mistake. I think that if we can build those connections, you know, we, had a, a, we started a, a basketball program with cops and kids in North Portland when I was the captain in North Precinct here in Portland, and it's a great example of how this can work. And we had these officers and kids just play basketball every Friday night. Uh, at the Salvation Army. Well, one night there's a disturbance call involving a bunch of youth and things aren't going so well with the officers and the kids who were at that scene until one of these officers who they played basketball with showed up. And then that the whole direction of that interaction changed because they already had a relationship. And so now we have some sort of a problem that we need to work through together. But if we have a relationship with one another, we're going to be a lot more 
positive and we're going to be a lot more productive in how we work through that problem. So I, I do believe that it is critically important for those kind of opportunities for, for officers across the board. I would also say uh, in, you know, one topic that has become a, a big topic of conversation in our profession is police in schools. And I would say that if you're going to have police in schools, if that's a decision that your community has made, you have to be really careful about what their mission is because police in schools should never be used to supplement the school's discipline process. And really the focus of police being in schools, other than protecting students from any kind of outside threats, should be to avoid introducing kids to the criminal justice system. And so, you know, every once in a while, especially in a big school system like ours here in Portland, we have had times where an arrest has to be made because it's just not discretionary. Something has happened that's bad enough that we have to make an arrest. But when we still had school police in this city, we had very few arrests out of those schools because we were clear with our school police officers and they were trained in things like restorative justice and in trauma-informed care in uh, juvenile brain development to help solve even public safety problems that come up in school without resorting to arrest because if at all possible we really need to keep kids out of that criminal justice system and use more positive and restorative means of, of dealing with issues that arise there. Thank you. Okay, two more questions. Uh, now to question number five. What do you see as the role of police in responding to mental health or drug-related crises? How do you ensure safety and inclusion for people with disabilities and people actively struggling with mental illness and or addiction? And that's another issue that I have a fair amount of experience dealing with here in Portland. Um, for a few years, I was a sergeant in a street crimes unit in downtown Portland, where we dealt a lot with people who, who struggled with addiction. And I'll start with the way not to deal with that. And that is the more traditional kind of crime control model. Uh, I can tell you from experience, because in the city of Portland and in a lot of other places, we tried arresting our way out of problems, with, particularly with addictions, and it doesn't work. Really, I see the role of police in those issues as, if at all possible, connecting people in either mental health crisis or with addiction issues with services that will work to actually address those issues. That's challenging these days because budgets are strained and there are never, it seems like there are never enough of those services available in the community. But, uh, you know, we started a, a law enforcement assisted diversion program when I was the commander at Central Precinct in downtown Portland. And we also have a, a post conviction program called the service coordination team, which connects people who are on parole or probation for low level type drug related or mental health related situations with services and with housing. And, you know, there's a, a Portland State University capstone study that showed, I think, a $13 return on the investment in foregone system costs down the road for every dollar that we invest in the service coordination team. So we know that that wraparound services approach works. 
but you can't arrest your way out of those issues. And then with regard to mental health crisis, those we've gotten a lot better as a profession, I would say, at dealing with, with those issues where they intersect with public safety. We tried, I think, really to apply that sort of crime control model that our profession had during the 80s and 90s when our focus was on crime on mental health issues. And that just doesn't work because it's not a criminal issue. And so we've had great success in this city with our uh, behavioral health unit, which pairs police officers with clinicians. We were one of the first agencies to adopt that, and you're starting to see that model come up all over the country. I think that's a very effective approach because in that, with with a, a program like that, you can identify people who might be escalating in terms of mental health crisis to a place where if we don't do anything, they may come into some really negative contact with a police officer. But if we can get out in front of that and do some follow-up with those folks with a clinician and connect them to some services, and again, just put that situation on a different path than it was on, we found that approach to be really effective because what you don't want to have happen is a situation in which you have to, you know, it gets to be such a public safety issue that somebody is, is creating such a, a hazard to public safety that force is necessary to be used. Because I, I just try to imagine what it would be like to be living with a mental health issue and come into a really forceful or, or arrest-oriented contact with a police officer that, that I, I can't imagine what that's like. And so I think, you know, we need to, our, our, our approach to mental health issues and addiction issues really needs to be a little more compassionate than I think it has been in the past. Thank you. Uh, so the final question, the PFC used a short community survey to ask the community what the focus should be for the chief in the next two or three years. The top response at 57% was to reduce crime as that focus. Please discuss your ideas to reduce crime through the innovative use of resources and partnerships to enhance community health and safety. So there's a growing awareness of especially violent crime in our profession as a, as a public health issue. And I think there are a lot of opportunities for us to partner with health system partners, with schools, and with other community partners, especially when it comes to uh, individuals who are sort of chronic users of our services. What we've seen here in Portland is that a lot of our people who get arrested a lot, they also end up in the emergency room a lot. They often will have, uh, excuse me, uh, they, they have a lot of contact with the health system. Uh, with kids, we'll see where, you know, if we have kids that become 
that have a lot of public safety related issues, I would say that there's, there's an intersection with what's going on at school. And so I have always wanted to see, and I know that there are barriers in terms of, of confidentiality rules with medical professionals and with criminal justice data, but I would really like to see us be able to compare notes with some of our public health partners on some of these individuals who show up in need of our services and theirs over and over again, because I think there are some opportunities there for us to get a better picture of what the issue is so that we can bring some services around that person to try and correct what the issue is for them. At the high level, I'm a firm believer in community policing, and I, I, I'm, I strongly believe, and I have some experience with this approach, that the way for us to reduce crime in our community is not for us as the police to define what the problem is, come in, impose a solution, and then declare it a success and then leave because we've done that in the past. And what happens is the problem always comes back and we create a lot of collateral damage in the process in communities if we're not careful because we didn't ask anybody what they thought the problems were in their community where they live. So I think that and we've had great success with this approach in my experience where if we identify an area where we have a particular crime problem and we come into that neighborhood and we identify the stakeholders in the area and uh, I'll give another example of the Albina Killingsworth neighborhood here in Portland, Oregon. We had at one point, I think, six shootings in really short order of, of youth in that neighborhood. And so we got together with a group of stakeholders, including businesses, the community college that's right there, some faith leaders, some longtime neighborhood residents. And we just came around that problem and we were able to develop a shared understanding, first of all, what the problem was. And we learned some things on the police side that and got some insight that we wouldn't have had if we had just tried to come in from the outside and impose a solution on this problem. And then they we're able to have some input into how we went about solving this problem. And we developed a strategy and, and it involved, there was an enforcement component. There were some community components to it. There was some crime prevention through environmental design components to it. And that project reduced violent crime in that neighborhood by something like 49% and it didn't generate any complaints because we agreed at the outset with the community about what, we as the police, what our role in that was, especially in terms of enforcement. And we just had to adjust what we normally would have done on our left to our own devices a little bit. And the community agreed with it and it was hugely successful. And then a few years later, when things started to drift a little bit and we, you know, there's a high school right in that area, and we started having a problem with some really negative interactions between kids from the high school and police officers, we were able to just get that group back together um, and I actually asked for some help from some of our pastors to just go walk the neighborhood with police officers. Um, it, it's a different conversation. You know, if you're going to have an interaction with a police officer, it's going to be different if it's the pastor of your church that's with that police officer. And it sent the message to the youth there that, no, the police authority is legitimate and, and we're in this together. And I think we were able to avoid a lot of problems that way. So I, I say all that to say that I think the, the right way to address crime issues and to reduce crime because it does work and, and has a lot less collateral damage than the sort of traditional police approach is to engage the community in defining the problem in the first place and then coming together to develop a, 
a solution to that problem that everybody can be on board with and doesn't always involve police everybody gets a role you know it's it's I'll say that I'll, I'll leave you with this thought on this question on community policing. I see community policing as uh, almost in terms of investments. And there's obviously the investment that the police make in the community in terms of their work and their engagement. But I, I, I would like to see us look for opportunities for community to invest in, in the police and to help firm up that sense of ownership that the community really needs to have in its police. And this is one opportunity to do that. I think training and, and selection processes and lots of other places are others. But I think this is a good way to help build that shared co-production of public safety. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks for participating this afternoon. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.